Paul said in Romans 13.11, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. We've been talking about how the letter of Jude is a storm warning. An alarm clock, if you will, waking up the people of God to contend, he says in verse 3, earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend for the faith. Mix it up. Go on the offensive. Stand up for what's true and right and just in a world that does not do that and is not even doing it this week. Stand up for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend. This letter is not a letter of personal attack. After all, no one is named here. But it is a prophetic alarm against the ungodly who creep in and damage and ravage the faith. The faith that we are called to contend for. Jude has had a lot to say about these creeps who creep in and who cause harm. And this is an instructive letter to strengthen and bolster the faith of the followers of Jesus Christ in the church, knowing that there are those who are in the church who are not in Christ. None of you here tonight. But there are those who who do creep in. For whatever reason, but they're here. Or at least within the church. Jude says, be aware, be on the alert, be prepared, be ready to fight for truth and don't shrink back when it comes, when the fight comes. But of these, of these who creep in, of these ungodly ones, he says, picking up in verse 11, woe to them. Woe to them. Sometimes I think we feel the opposite. Woe to us Christians. Woe. Just hanging on by a very, you know, thin thread. Woe to us in this world having such a difficult time of it. No, woe to the ungodly. Woe to them, Jude says quite clearly. Now that's a very Jewish word, by the way. Woe. You might not hear it that way. But in Yiddish, it's oy vey. It's actually, I read this today, the opposite of mazel tov. So, depending on your mood. You know, mazel tov, oy vey. And that Yiddish phrase, oy vey, literally comes directly from ancient Hebrew. The ancient Hebrew, which is also, by the way, the Greek word here for woe, transliterated into Greek. It's the Greek, it's the Hebrew, it's pronounced the same. It's oy. Oy. To them, he says. Now, because of perhaps the Yiddish background and and maybe even uh, the culture that that we've seen over the years, that idea of oy vey is more of a a comical, you know, oh oh no. Uh, But truly this word is a word of intense grief or, or sorrow. It's an expression of dread. Maybe the word alas comes a little closer to it. Alas. Although we don't even really use that word anymore, do we? Oy, it's sorrow, it's grief, it's what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 11. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him for what he deserves will be done to him. Or the prophet Ezekiel, 
chapter 13, verse 3, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. Jesus uses the word. In fact, in Mark, uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus denounces three cities. Chorazim, Bethsaida, Capernaum. The three cities that saw the majority of his miracles and yet landed in disbelief. He says, woe to them. And even more famously, I suppose, Matthew 13, verses 13 through 39, you can read this. Jesus gives eight woes to the Pharisees. Woe to them. Alas to them. Grief to them. Sorrow. What's interesting with Jesus is when he says, boy, he shares the grief. It's not just woe to them, but even as he speaks it, it's his grief over what would become their grief. So as Jude, in the middle of the letter, just bursts out with woe to them, it is an expression of grief. Now, woe is also not only grief, grief, but it's a grief with warning. Grief as in something terrible is going to happen because of this. And so Jude continues to ring the alarm tonight with the next triad. Remember I told you out of 25 verses there are 14 triads in this letter. We haven't looked at every one, but we've looked at a few. And we've seen that that Jude likes to write in threes. Well, he's about to do that again. Verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone, number one, the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And number three, perished in the rebellion of Korah. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the rebellion of Korah. Interesting examples that he draws right out of the Hebrew scriptures. The first being the way of Cain. You know the story. Genesis chapter 4. Abel brought the first and and best of his flock as an offering to God and Cain brought a nice basket of fruit. Sets it before the Lord and the Bible tells us God had no regard for Cain's offering. Now someone might say, well that's not a very nice dad. You know, regarding one over the other. No, no. By now, they had understanding of the heart of God and what they were to bring to God. And it wasn't just that one brought fruit and one brought the best of his flock. It's that Cain apparently looks as though he kind of threw something together last minute. Oh, Abel's bringing a lamb. Better throw together something. Does God like bananas? Let's throw that in there. And he throws it before God. God is a respecter of the heart. He pays attention to the heart. He knows what is in the heart and what's behind any offering, by the way, that you give. I hope, I hope you don't ever give begrudgingly to the Lord. Because He'll know. He'll know the heart. It's probably better if you just not. Of course, if you're not giving begrudgingly, that's not good either. Trusting the Lord. Giving unto God. And we see very early on, the example of Abel is the right example. Giving the best that you've got and the first that you've got. And so Abel did that, and Cain did not, and God was not pleased. I think the Lord knew that Cain's offering was an afterthought. Well, Genesis chapter 4 verse 5 says, Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Understand this, the way of Cain is anger. 
But it's not just anger. See, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. The way of Cain is anger unto sin. It's an anger that results in sin. And by the way, this led to the very first murder in history. The old story of Cain and Abel. But the Bible shows us ahead of time, before the murder takes place, before the killing happens, that there is anger in Cain's heart. The way of Cain. Not only is this the first murder in the Bible, it's the first time the word anger is used. And I've told you before that the principle of first mention, especially in the book of Genesis, is is huge for us, that we recognize words that are used the very first time in the book of Genesis have great meaning. If you're ever struggling with the meaning of a word in the scriptures, go back and find the first time it was used. You know? Like like love. First use of the word love, Genesis twenty two. Is where God says to Abram, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first time we see the word love in the Bible. In the offering of a father, offering his son. So anger, this is the first time we see it. And Cain is angry, and this is the way of Cain. And again, the Bible says, Paul writes Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, and yet do not sin. It's not a prohibition against being angry. It's a prohibition against allowing anger to take over. You see, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And that's the problem. Because anger starts to set me out of control. Anger kicks the door open to allow sin to come in. Now, you might ask the question, on the way of Cain, what does that have to do with these ungodly men? They have gone the way of Cain. There's just a bunch of angry young men. I mean, what's the deal with this? There is often an indicative smoldering anger among false teachers. They don't like to be challenged. They don't like to be questioned. You know, kind of a rule of thumb in dealing with teaching. If someone's teaching something and you disagree and you challenge them on it and they begin to get angry. I don't think I've done that. Rick, why'd you say this? Well, how dare you question my authority and my veracity? (laughs) Anger is a sign that something's not right, especially where godliness is concerned, because anger does not tend to be a godly quality, unless, like Jesus, it's controlled anger. Oh, he was angry with what he saw in the temple. But Mark tells us he looked around at everything and then he went and spent the night in Bethany and the next day came back and cleared the temple. So it was completely controlled and it was completely intentional. That kind of anger, holy anger, righteous anger, right on. But when this anger kind of comes from nowhere, man, when the, when the false teacher's message is denied, they're going to get angry about it. You want some proof? I'll give you a historical example. Happened in 627 A.D. with the Banu Kuridza, or Kuriadza. The Banu Kuridza is, or was, a Jewish tribe living in Medina. Along comes Muhammad with a new teaching. He says to the Jewish people, as he would to the Christians, join me in this, I've got the further revelation. We have the same God, not true. We have the same Jesus, not true. I just have additional revelation for you. Join me and we'll all do this together. That was his first foray with his false teaching now known as Islam. And he presented it to the Jewish people and they rejected it. 
So Muhammad turns around, short version of the story, and in 627 A.D. had six to nine hundred, we're not sure exactly how many, at least six hundred, but upwards of nine, nine hundred men of that tribe beheaded because they disagreed with his teaching. That's the anger of a false teacher. You don't agree with me, die death to the infidel. That's a false teacher. See, someone who's teaching truth doesn't have to fight for it. Doesn't even have to go on the defensive. Just uh, This is what it says. You can disagree with me, but what does it say? What does the Word tell us? And it's no skin off my nose. Watch out for the telltale sign of the way of Cain, the way of anger. The godly... Godly person knows where his or her authority comes from. You know, we know what the truth is. So we're not threatened when someone questions or challenges it. The way of Cain is the way of anger. But there's also, he says, the error of Balaam. Oh, Balaam, that bullheaded, bloviating seer. Balaam, who's talked about in Numbers 22 and Numbers 24 and Numbers 31, he's called out three times in the New Testament. We just looked at him back in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, which talks about the way of Balaam. And here in Jude 11, he talks about the error of Balaam. And then finally in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, he talks about the teaching of Balaam. We'll look at the differences of those perhaps when we get to Revelation. But in Numbers 22, here's a quick overview of the story. Many of you have heard this. Balak, king of Moab, wants to curse Israel. He's concerned. Here comes this this group of three million or so Jews, and they're on the borders of his land, and he's just afraid they're going to come in and just wipe him out. And so he figures, let's call out a seer. Let's curse these people. Calls up Balaam. Well, sends a, a cadre of guys with some lucrative job offers. Hey, we'll pay you well. Come and curse Israel for us. Well, Balaam asks the Lord. Balaam's interesting because Balaam is not a Jewish prophet. But he was a seer. And he actually asked the Lord, hey, can I go? And God says, uh-uh. Don't you dare go cursing my people. Oh, man, can I please go? I said no, Balaam. So Balaam goes back to Balak's boys. And he says in Numbers twenty-two eighteen, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, wink, wink, hint, hint, I could do nothing either small or great contrary to the command of the Lord my God. The error of Balaam is seen for what it is right there in Balaam's statement. If you had all the gold in the world to give me, you know, raise the stakes of it, maybe I can talk God into it. The error of Balaam is greed. It's greed. Numbers 22, verse 20 says, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. And so begins this bizarre twist in a biblical drama as Balaam's donkey enters the fray. Balaam's donkey stops him in his tracks, speaks to him. The Lord gives voice to a donkey. I've always thought, if God can use a donkey, He can use me. And so as the story goes, ultimately, Balaam ends up on a high mountain overlooking all of Israel, and he begins to give these prophetic discourses. And he can't do anything but bless. Every time he opens his mouth, all that comes out is blessing. Involuntarily, I think, I think he opens his mouth to curse. What a great looking people you got down there, God. <laughs> and off he goes, blessing them and blessing them again and again. And in that, even gives one of the most amazing early 
prophecies of the birth of Jesus. Numbers chapter 24 verse 17. I see him but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And this greedy self-serving diviner prophesies of the Messiah. It's a marvelous story. But the problem is greed. And what greed does is it robs people of God's grace. Greed robs of grace. How does that apply here? Well, think about what Paul warned Timothy about. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. He's talking about the same people that Jude is. And he says, Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. People who suppose their ministry, their prophetic ministry, their television ministry is a way to make a buck off the unsuspecting. And Paul warned about that. He says, listen, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Godliness is the reward in and of itself. Paul says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Heads up, alert, the way of Cain, they're going to get angry, watch for it. The error of Balaam, they're going to be greedy, keep your eyes open. The rebellion of Korah. Now this one we just got to look at. So turn back to Numbers chapter 16 in your Bibles for a quick moment. Numbers 16. The rebellion of Korah. Numbers. Chapter 16. Right at the beginning of the chapter. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, oh, Kohath, the Kohathites, the Levites, okay, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, who never really had an off day, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. All right, they took action. What are they going to do? Well, they rose up before Moses. Together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown, and they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, you've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Listen, look at how they were described in verse 2. These men were leaders of the congregation. They were chosen in the assembly. They were men of renown, but they did not like being led. They didn't like the fact that Moses was in charge, that someone was in authority over them. They did not like authority. Rebellion rarely does. (laughs) The rebellion of Korah is envy. They resented Moses. They were envious of the position that Moses and Aaron held before the congregation. And what's great about this is Moses doesn't defend himself. In fact, I love Moses' approach. It's a very humble approach. You know that Moses said, he wrote in Numbers 12 verse 3, that Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Which I've always found interesting. Could you write that about yourself? (laughs) But he was. And I believe... He was compelled to add that. I don't think Moses probably wanted to. 
But he doesn't defend himself. What he does is remind Korah of his favored position as a priest. You're a priest of the tribe of Levi. And then he hands the situation over to God. Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. He spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. We're going to put this in God's hands. Your contention's not with me. If you don't like the fact that he put me in charge, fine. Let's go before him, and let's just ask him, and let him give answer for this. Verse 6, do this. Take censers like fire pans for yourselves, Korah and all your company. Put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. And then Moses does add, you've gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Think I've gone far enough? You guys have gone way too far. The next day, Moses summons them all to the tent of meeting. Of course, Dathan and Abiram and On, sons of Reuben, boycotted the meeting. They wouldn't even come. They wouldn't show up at all. They refused to show. And the end of the story is intense. What happens there is that, well, God fired Korah. Literally. And he put down the rebellion, literally. If you skip over to verse 32 of number 16, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. And their households, note that, And all the men who belonged to Korah, with their possessions, down they went. So they and all so they and all that belonged to them went alive down to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished in the midst of the assembly. Verse thirty four is a little humorous. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. You can just see them running. And then verse 36, or 35, fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering their incense. What a day in the camp of Israel. But here's the question I want to ask, and you can go back and read and think through that story and look at the envious rebellion that was taking place on that day, Korah and Datham and Abiram and on. Why does Jude reach back to this ancient story? What's, what's the point of it? Specifically in this letter, we get you know the, the, the anger of Cain and, and we get the greed of Balaam, but the envy of, of Korah, what's the deal here? Listen, yes, anger, anger will kill. And anger murders relationships. Greed robs of grace. Especially when you know non-believers see greed among believers and they're turned off by it. You're, you're stealing opportunity for salvation there. But envy? What's the deal with envy? Listen, it can burn out and take down entire families. And specifically, entire church families. You ever known church families who are torn apart by envy? Or greed or anger? And that's what Jude is concerned with and that's what he's talking about. And so he raises all three of these examples to say, keep your eyes open because these things will be evident You know, as Jesus said, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but you know a tree by its fruit. And if you see a fruit of anger, if you see a fruit of greed or envy, jealousy, rivalry going on, that is not of God. That's not what the Lord does. 
And in case anyone's uncertain at this point of the clear and present dangers of these ungodly ones and how they might affect or the impact they might have on the church, Jude continues now with five metaphors of these men of woe. Verse 12, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Or that word caring is shepherding themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It is stunning graphic poetry, but take them one at a time. Hidden reefs. These guys are like hidden reefs in your love feast. Hidden reefs is the word... Spilades, not pilates, that's a different thing. Spilades, and it simply means rocks or ledges. If you're reading a King James translation, it may translate as spot. That's not a good translation. That's really not the implication of the word here. It is reefs. It is that which a ship would crash on and be damaged by. And he's talking about these guys who come along, hidden reefs. They cause moral and spiritual wreckage in your love feasts. And they do it without fear, he says. In your love feast, without fear. These guys are bringing about wreckage. What does that mean? Agape feasts, perhaps you've studied or heard about, was a, was a thing in the first century, far more than today. We have our little sanitary cups so that we don't have to get anybody else's germs on ourselves. You know, but in, in that day, they would gather and communion was an entire meal. It was, it was a joyful feasting together. And many of the new fledgling fellowships adopted this approach to, to sharing communion together. They would literally break bread and pass, you know, the, the goblet of wine and they would, they would share this together and praise the Lord and they would remember Jesus and, and have the entire love feast. The idea was to extend the intimacy of communion. And communion is supposed to be an intimate thing, by the way. It, it is. It should draw us together. It's one of the most connecting things that Christians do. And so these agape feasts, man, you come to the table of the Lord, you come with brothers and sisters, you feast together, you remember Jesus, but these guys are coming along and what they brought to the table was wreckage of relationship. These these guys are, are in your most intimate place And they're wrecking things, and they're destroying things, and they are hidden reefs. And Paul encountered a similar issue at Corinth, at least with communion getting out of hand and not being the intimate thing that it was supposed to be. Those who were well off coming and feasting ahead of times, and those who were poor didn't have anything, and they weren't even being allowed to eat, because hey, if you don't bring food, you don't eat. And Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 11.29, He who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. All kinds of interpretations about what that means. But if communion is the intimate time that we believe that it is and understand the Bible to say that it is, then judging the body is judging the body. If we don't recognize the body, if we don't consider the body of Christ rightly as we're taking communion, See, that's why Jesus said, if you're bringing your offering to the altar and you've got a problem with your brother, leave your offering, go take care of the problem, and then come back and give. And you can apply the same thing to communion. How can you stand in communion with a brother or sister in Christ and be in contention and at odds with them? 
No, fix the relationship because you're entering into intimacy. When Cheryl and I are at odds, she doesn't like holding hands. I don't know why. (laughs) Intimacy gets broken where there's contention and that's what these guys are doing. To rightly consider the body, by the way, is another way of fearing the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not going to care about His body. So... These guys are hidden reefs. They're clouds without water, carried along, he says, by winds. That is very telling. The Greek word for wind is usually, usually, not here, but usually it's pneuma. Also translates spirit. The Hebrew word is ruach, also translates either wind or spirit, but not here. Here, where he says these are clouds without water, carried along by winds, these winds are animos, which literally is a squall or a gale. Something that whips up, stirs up. And so what he's describing here is these guys who are blown about by squalls, they're clouds with no water. So there's nothing to the wind, it's just just something stirred up. There's no spirit there. And they're clouds without water, you could say without living water. What is he describing here? He says it plainly down in verse 19. These are those who are devoid of the Spirit. Hidden reefs causing destruction in your intimate times as a fellowship. They're devoid of the Spirit like empty clouds just blown along in a squall. These ungodly ones pretend to be spiritual, but they don't have the Spirit. They're not walking in the Spirit. And you know what else that means? No fruit. No fruit. They're autumn trees without fruit. Doubly dead, uprooted. I read that one, I thought, that's just not right. Autumn trees without fruit. Hey man, it's honey crisp season right now. It is my favorite apple season of the year. This is the time when it, the apples should be big and juicy and sweet, but these guys are autumn trees without fruit. Interesting. They should be abounding with fruit. If, if they walk in the Spirit... They're not just blown along by animos squalls. They should be fruitful. But if you're devoid of the Spirit, guess what? Not only are you fruitless, you're also rootless. And again, that's describing these guys. Jesus said in Matthew 7.16, You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And then Paul writes, Galatians 5.22, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The list of the nine fruit of the Spirit. And I want to remind you of this. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. You're going to know the false teacher. You're going to know the ungodly by their fruits. But you know the godly by their fruit. Singular. That is, all of these nine different varieties of fruit come from the one and same Spirit. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And when you see this in a life, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, when you see this emulated in the life, that's coming from one source, one tree, one spirit, who is always fruitful and always brings about fruit in our lives. But these guys are autumn trees without fruit. And they're, interesting, doubly dead. Doubly dead. What does that mean? Well, the Bible talks about two deaths. There is physical death, And there is spiritual death. Revelation 20 verse 14 tells us that death in Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then John writes, this is the second death. 
the lake of fire. The second death is spiritual and eternal. It's forever. The first death is just physical. So at worst, even someone who follows Christ may taste of the first death, but not the second death. Well, these are doubly dead. What does that mean? They're already spiritually dead. They've already crossed into that era or into that realm of eternal death. They're already there. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. So they're not sourced into anything. They're in it for themselves. They're wild waves of the sea casting up, he says, their own shame like foam. What a picture. Think about rogue waves. They're just boiling and crashing and they destroy and their shame sprays and froths. So another picture here of moral and spiritual wreckage. They are wandering stars, he says, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. I've had people try to tell me that all of the eternals and the forevers and the ever and evers in the Bible really aren't eternal. Hell's not really eternal. It's just, you know, for a short time. I'm sorry, but the Greek word for forever means forever. And the punishment is forever. Not because I want it to be that way. Not because God wants it to be that way. But man, sin against an eternal God, what other punishment do you expect but an eternal punishment? And these are those who are just wandering stars. Think about, think about shooting stars. You see them, they're brilliant, they're glorious. Wow, look at that! And they're gone. These have no home, no galaxy. They're just roaming until they flame out. No future, no hope, wandering stars. You know, Daniel talks about a different kind of star. Stars that don't wander. Stars that are led. And actually stars that lead to Jesus Christ. He says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And you know how long that is in the Hebrew? It's forever and ever. But the ungodly, they just lead to wreckage. Verse 14, it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones, His hagios, His saints. As we talked about Sunday, He's speaking right there. Seventh generation from Adam. He's already talking about the second coming of Jesus followed by His saints. And He comes, verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Now we studied that on Sunday and talked about it, but I want to remind you of this. That ungodliness doesn't have to be this horrible, dark, despicable, evil thing hunched over and horns and all that. Ungodliness is simply living life without respect to God. I don't know that we think in those terms, but it's true. The ungodly can be a real nice person. The ungodly, it just means you don't have God. And you don't have any fear of the Lord because He has nothing to do with your life. He's really irrelevant to you. That's ungodly. Godliness is the opposite. God is everything to you. God is relevant to your life. He is your focus. He is your desire He is your longing and your love. Verse 16, these are, oh, (laughs) grumblers. Any grumblers among us? The older I get, the easier it is. (laughs) 
I come out and all the lights are on and they've been on all night long. Cheryl will say, you're doing it. I'm doing what? I'm not doing anything. What's going on here? They're fault finders. Any fault finders among us? Brothers and sisters, listen, they're talking about, he's talking about a specific group of people who are ungodly intentionally and they are going after the fellowship and they are wreaking havoc. But listen, listen, some of us can tend to be fault finders. If you see any of these ungodly characteristics in your life, man, repent. Hand it over to the Lord. You start to recognize, wow, I'm kind of being critical of a lot of people here. I need to back off. I need to start looking for the good Best prayer you can pray when you feel like a fault finder? Lord Jesus, help me to see them the way you do. I cannot tell you how many times that prayer has saved me over the years. Help me see him. Help me see her the way you do. For when I pray that, my perspective always changes. Always. Someone i got issues with? Lord, help me see him the way you do. And and suddenly, Glenn and I get along fine again. (laughs) Help me see... (laughs) Let me see them the way you do, Lord. And we stop finding fault. Fault finding is not a thing for followers of Jesus Christ. Brumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. In other words, with the ungodly, there's always an agenda. They're always angling for something. And they're never never content for long. What do you mean by that, Rick? I mean, all these characteristics will emerge. They will come out. If you're not sure, you know, if you're hearing something strange coming from someone and, and you see a little bit of wreckage behind them, give them time. It'll get worse. It'll come out. It always does. Trying to gain an advantage, he says, but in verse 17, you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And of course, Jude is right there pretty clearly referring to Peter's second letter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Know this first of all, said the apostle, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust. And I need to raise this issue with you just for a moment and think about this with me. What are they mocking? What are the mockers who come with their mocking? What are they mocking? Do you remember what Peter says they're mocking? Where's the sign of His coming? Everything has gone on like it has since the beginning. The mockers who come with their mocking specifically are mocking the second coming of Jesus Christ. Poking fun at it, laughing at it, saying, you Christians who are all hopped up on the second coming, you're crazy. You're nutty. You ever hear that from another Christian? Ever hear another Christian mock conversations of the rapture of the church, the return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of His kingdom? There's a warning here. When someone begins to mock the second coming, warning. Sometimes people will mock like the rapture. Because, you know, in the church, there are those who believe in the rapture of of the church, that Jesus is going to call us up. Harpazo, he's going to catch us up. 
And we're going to meet Him in the clouds and be with the Lord in the air. And so we'll forever be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4.16, biblical, straightforward biblical teaching. It's clear. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will, will be raised. You know, it's going to happen that quickly. The rapture. I like the word rapture. I didn't used to like the word rapture because I thought it was part of the fringe element of the church. Well, my friends, it's biblical. But have you ever heard Christians saying that's crazy? Well, a large percentage of the church doesn't buy it. Glenn and I were talking about this today. You know, it's one thing if people don't buy the rapture because they just haven't studied it and don't understand it and really haven't come to see it in the Scripture. Okay, give them some time and, and, and talk it through. It's another thing if they're mocking it. Because Peter says, this is what's going to happen. Mockers will come with their mocking. And these who mock, my friends, Jude equates it to the false teachers. So I would say there's some thin ice going on out there. There are those who don't know. I'm convinced there are going to be people raptured who have no clue about the rapture. And wow, are they going to be surprised. You know, they've been down to tie their shoe and they're looking at a cloud. Whoa! What's... How bad... <laughs> but there are those who make fun of it, who scoff at it, who scorn it. Woe, woe to them. Oh, Rick, are you saying they won't be saved? I'm not saying anything except woe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, boy, if you mock the second coming of Jesus, if you mock the plan of God, says something about where your heart's at, man. And that's what these ungodly ones are doing. I mean, these are the ones, verse 19, who cause divisions. They are worldly-minded. Worldly-minded, don't, don't let that one slip by without understanding. Worldly-minded just means you do things the way the world does. It's business as the world. It's, it's thinking like the world. It's behaving like the world. It's treating each other like the world. See, the world is a fault-finding world. All the way back to your high school years. All the world wants to do is find fault. Are we? No, that's not us. The world is divisive. Is the church supposed to be? No. The world is devoid of the Spirit. We are supposed to be filled with the Spirit. And what's interesting here is that Jude says, these are the ones, remember verse 4, he said, these are the ones who were written out beforehand for condemnation. They were already marked out. God saw it coming. God knew who it would be. And so it's already written down that those who engage in this behavior, those who act this way, those who are ungodly will be condemned. It's already been written. Marked out ahead of time. Do you see why? I'll tell you what, they do one thing here and and Jude lands on it here at the very end. They cause divisions. It is the one thing above all other things that God hates. A lot of things that the Lord hates. Did you know that? The God of love hates? Yeah, He hates anything that, that, especially that divides. He hates anything that harms. Well, let me read you the list. Proverbs 6.16 There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him, which in Hebrew speak is, there are six things He hates, and the seventh one He hates even more than the six He hates. It's the worst of all. Here are the six. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Oh, he hates that. 
a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and he hates all of that. But then we get to number seven. This one trumps them all. One who spreads strife among brothers. Or as Jude says, cause divisions. The whole letter to this point is pretty intense. We read this and we think, okay, man, Jude, what hope do we have? You know, in fact, you might even be sitting there going, if this is going on in the church, I'm getting out. And some do. Tragically, some do. They say, I'm not going to have any of that. That's what those Christians are like. I'm gone. Well, the thing is, as we've been talking about, Jesus said, the tares are going to grow with the wheat all the way until the Son of Man comes. And then He'll divide it out. It's God's way of of dealing with it without harming the wheat. So the tares are going to be there. The ungodliness is going to be there right alongside with the godliness. By the way, there's a specific way that we respond to that and deal with that. And Jude, we'll get to that in just a second here. But in reading all of this, you can get down to the end of verse 19 and really be a little bummed out, a little worried, and possibly paranoid. As you look around, who's he talking about? Verse 20. He shifts direction now in a marvelous way after this serious warning, the alarm bells ringing, the storm warning going off, and suddenly says, but you, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Hmm. That, that sounds great. That's the kind of teaching that I've been wanting out of Jude. That's what we tend to look for. We open the Bible, we want that kind of encouragement. Okay, so how do we do this? He says, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. How do we do that? Well, Jude's answer is a triad. He gives three participles that balance out or answer this idea of building yourself up on your most holy faith. He says, you are to... Pray in the Spirit. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he says, wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You do that, you're going to build your faith. Now listen, before I get into these, there's something implied in the whole idea of building up your faith. There's something else that goes with it. So I'm going to add it into the triad. I call it a quatrad. So we have the three that we'll get to in just a second, but there's one before it. That is implicit in the idea, inherent in building up our most holy faith. Let me ask you, where did Jude say our faith comes from? Go all the way back to verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. There it is. Where did it come from? It was once for all handed down to the saints. How was it handed down? Paul says faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Romans 10 verse 9. So if you want a faith that is built up and strong, stay in the word. Stay in the word. Be in the word. The word changes you. The Word has a sanctifying effect. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17. Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. You want to be sanctified? You want to be strengthened? You want to be built up in your faith? you got to be in the Word. Which is exactly what you're doing here tonight. 
Stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. It is the source and it is the supply of building. Building faith. As Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. The workman needs the Word of truth to build. So if you want to build faith, you've got to be in the Word. I love that old Spurgeon quote, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Well said. You've got to have the Word if you want to build up this most holy faith. But here's what Jude says to do. Here's the triad that builds this holy faith that is built on, that comes from hearing the Word of Christ. Now he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit at its most simple definition, is, I believe, to be inspired by what the Lord desires. That's to pray in the Spirit. It's praying prayers that God wants to answer. It's being in such communion with God that you're hearing from Him, and you're aligning yourself with Him, and you're praying back to Him what He's already asked you or told you or inclined upon you to pray. It's being inspired by what God desires. I love Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because you're delighted in Him. Because the more delighted you are in the Lord, the more your heart's desire is aligned with His heart's desire and He's going to give you that desire. Because you're, you're with Him in it. Lord, give me prayers that you want to answer. Sometimes praying in the Spirit is silent. Sometimes it's not, I mean, not a word spoken. I think of Nehemiah standing there before Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes says, what's wrong? Nehemiah prayed. That's all the Bible says, just two words, Nehemiah prayed. And then he explained what was wrong. I I doubt in that moment before the king that Nehemiah knelt down and went, just a minute, king. Father who art in heaven! And and began to just pray. he He just prayed. And praying in the Spirit. See, this is the beautiful thing. The world doesn't get this. You can pray in the Spirit anywhere. You can be driving down in the road in your car, praying in the Spirit, not opening your mouth. You can be in line at the grocery store and be praying in the Spirit. You can be on top of the Temple Mount where the Muslim quaff says, you cannot pray up here. Actually, it's walk. Anyway, whatever it is, the Muslim authority says, no praying on the Temple Mount. Let me just ask, how many of you have been to Israel with us? Okay. How many of you who just raised your hand prayed on the Temple Mount when we were up there? See? Rebels. You can't stop us praying in the Spirit. And by the way, if you're walking in the Spirit, you're probably praying in the Spirit. Don't overthink this. Praying in the Spirit can be as simple as right now. Thank you, Father. It's seeking Him in the instant. I, I love that we walk in the Spirit because that means we have immediate and instant access. There are times I need to ask Cheryl a question and I cannot get her on my phone. I can't get her. You know, there has not been a time in my walk with Jesus that I haven't been able to reach Him. Instantaneously. That's What a marvelous thing. Pray in the Spirit. Anytime, anywhere. And it can be silent. Praying in the Spirit is also a prayer language. And we got into this and we talked about it in a previous study in 1 Corinthians 14. And I'm not dodging it. I would love to talk about it more. I just don't have time because there's still a couple of big things here at the end of this letter. 
And I would say go back and listen to that teaching. If you're not sure about it, or, or study. Study 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's in the book. It is God's will for us. It is His desire for us. Study it out. Don't discount it just because perhaps it's different than your personal tradition. It was different than mine. Praying in the Spirit is having a prayer language. It's, it's, it's a way, and we did talk about this before, of, of quieting the mind to actually hear the Spirit. And Paul says, when my, when my Spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. That is, in that moment, I'm not spinning out scenarios and thinking it through and strategizing and trying to tell the Lord what He needs to do with my life. And I think I talked about back in, in 1 Corinthians 14 how some of, some of you get this, your mind just buzzes constantly. It's why I love music and why I love movies and why I love a good book because my mind stops and focuses, you know. But most other times, spinning around, buzzing, thinking, you know, and sometimes praying out loud and talking to the Lord and trying to make everything right and to pray correctly and do it all, you know, or my, my flesh gets in there. But when I pray in the Spirit, my mind's unfruitful. It has a quieting effect on the mind. It allows you just to still. And then you can hear. Well, Paul talks about that, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. By the way, remember 1 Corinthians 13 is in the middle of that? So in that epic three-chapter section on how to walk in the Spirit and, and to live with spiritual gifts and spiritual things, how to hear from the Lord spiritually, right in the middle of that he says, and the apex of all this is love. If you don't have love, none of this other stuff matters. You're just clanging. Praying in the Spirit is silent. It's, it's, it's a prayer language. And sometimes... Praying in the Spirit is simply inarticulate, Godward groaning. You ever do that? You ever just groan to God? You get some news and you don't even have words. You know exactly what I'm talking about here. Your heart is heavenward. You're thinking about Him, but you don't even know what to pray. Maybe you heard something on the news and you're just disgusted and you just go, Oh, Lord. And you know in that moment it'd be great if you could come up with some eloquent prayer to deal with the situation that has just upset you, but you got no words. Oh, Lord. Ever been there? I don't even know what to say. So upset by an event or a happening in your life, you got no words. Man, as I said before, if we walk in the Spirit, we pray in the Spirit. And I think we will be shocked and surprised to discover how often we have prayed in the Spirit and we didn't even know it. <laughs> There's a thought for you. God heard you and you didn't realize you were talking to Him, but you were. You're groaning. What does Paul say? Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For in hope, listen, for in hope... We have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, he says. So so the hope unseen is the example for what he's about to say. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. What, What do you mean, Paul? He does something unseen. He does something 
that you wait for, that you walk in in perseverance, but you may not see it, you may not even know it, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know how we how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, who intercedes for the saints according to the will of God? Who is that? Well, wait a minute. No, He searches. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So who's the He? It's Jesus. Right? So Jesus knows the mind of the Spirit. He hears our cries. He intercedes. He translates. The Spirit groans for us. Jesus hears it, translates. The Father responds. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wrapped up in, caught up in our prayers, our groanings, our prayers in the Spirit, things that, again, we don't even know what to say or or perhaps even what it is that we're saying. And i got to give you one of the greatest quotes I've read on this recently, and it comes from a very surprising source to me, John Calvin. I don't think I've ever quoted Calvin. This is a first. So for you, you know, Calvinists, here you go. (laughs) Such is our sloth, and that such is the coldness of our flesh, that no one can pray aright, except he be roused by the Spirit of God. No one can pray as he ought without having the Spirit as his guide. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I guess I'm a Calvinist, at least for that sentence. (laughs) We pray in the Spirit. And Jude here says, man, do that. You want to be godly? You want to build up your faith? Praying in the Spirit is a key. Tragically, people hear the phrase, pray in the Spirit... And, and it goes runs counter, perhaps, to their tradition or their history. And so they well, I, I'll take that off the list. Well, then you're building with one less material. You're building without some of the tools that are given to you to build up your most holy faith. Praying in the Spirit, he says. And, and of course, Jude encourages this. It's intentional. Intentional praying in the Spirit. So there is praying in the Spirit where we don't even realize we're doing it. We're groaning. There's, there's silent prayer. And there's prayer language. And I do lean into that that Jude is talking about prayer language and he's talking about freeing your mind, so to speak, so that you can hear God. And he says, man, do it. Pray in the Spirit. Have that focus. Secondly, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, which doesn't mean make yourself lovable to God, because you can't. You're going to have a bad day. On your best day, you're going to have a bad moment. We don't prove ourselves worthy of His love. His love was given before you and I were even born. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The proof of the love of God. Keep yourself in it. Stay in the love of God. Let this be your single-minded focus. That truly and ultimately the love of God is what this is all about. And as I said before, any of the fruit of the Spirit will not work unless the Spirit is present. And if the Spirit is present, you're in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Romans 8.38 I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great song. Just Scripture. 
The love of God. Keep yourself in it. Because, as a very wise man once said, faith works with love. Faith does not work without love. You want to build up your most holy faith? It must be in love, in the love of God, emulating the love of God. Because you know what? Nothing compels our love. Nothing changes us and causes us to love more than the love of God for us. So to keep yourself in the love of God, why don't you ponder the love of God? Meditate on the love of God. Consider the love of God and the love that He has specifically for you. The more you consider that, the more you are compelled to love like Him. Keep yourself in the love of God. Pray in the Spirit. And number three, wait anxiously for the mercy of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now this is so cool. So dial in. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Right? We all agreed on that. This is grace. Grace is getting something, man. I, I, I don't deserve it. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. You know, the cop who doesn't give me a ticket is showing mercy when I was going 75 and a 20. Not that I did that recently. Saying that. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. The grace of God, you cannot earn it. Mercy? Wow, that's just... I've earned something with mercy. I've earned something bad. And mercy allows me not to have to face that. Why are you saying this, Rick? Well, it's interesting. He says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Why doesn't he say grace? Waiting anxiously for the grace of God. Well, the grace of God is given. And remember, he's talking to people who have received the grace of God, who cannot have earned it. We just have it because God has chosen to give it, but we're waiting anxiously for the mercy. Okay, so what does he mean? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. What do all people deserve? Death. Mercy is not dying. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the rapture of the church. Listen again. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, such that you do not even die. The mercy of our Lord Jesus here is the rapture. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And that covers a whole slew of people across 2,000 years. But he also says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So we're waiting anxiously for that mercy. The mercy that saves us even from what we most deserve, and that is our death. Now, if you want a little more proof that I think that that Jude is talking about the rapture here, the, the catching up of the church, the harpazo is the word, First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, we will be caught up. More proof? He says that we're to be waiting anxiously for it. Waiting anxiously is the word prostekomenoi, or prostekomai, uh, but here it's, it's prostekomenoi. This same word, waiting anxiously, is used by Paul in Titus 2.13, that we are to be looking for, prostekomai, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The blessed hope is the rapture, folks. And we're to be looking forward to it, waiting anxiously for it. 
And the Bible talks about this, describes the rapture in that way, to have eyes open, to be expectant. Jesus says, be on the alert. You don't know when the time's going to come. You don't know when it's going to happen. Be ready, eyes wide open. Wait expectantly. Look for it. Prostechomai. And we are to be doing that, waiting anxiously, looking forward to the blessed hope, or in this case, the mercy. And that's why many conservative scholars think, and I agree, that the mercy is the rapture. That that's exactly what he means here, what he's talking about. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Look for it. Man, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, and living a life of expectation for the mercy, the rapture, to be caught up, to be with Him. By the way, as we build up our faith, did you notice, did you see it there? Who's involved in all three aspects of this little triad? Well, we're praying in the Holy Spirit, we're keeping ourselves in the love of God, and we're waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity. Spirit, Father, and Son. Well, that's out of order, exactly. (laughs) And I just have to point that out. In this case, rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in decreasing order, it's Spirit, Father, and Son, and we're all together. The Trinity. The Holy Triad, you might say. Now, Jude turns to yet another triad before we finish, and it's a trio of ungodliness. Specifically, and I told you we come to this, how do the godly respond? I'm reading this whole letter and I'm seeing, man, these just the, just the fact that they're autumn trees without fruit alone makes me not like these guys. And all that he's described makes me just, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Boot them out of the church. Let, let's excommunicate them. Let's just get rid of them and we don't have to deal with them, right? That's not what Jude says to do. And he gives this, this again, this is the 13th triad of the fourteen. What do you do with those who who are either ungodly or who have been wrongly influenced by ungodliness? Look at verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. That's the first group. The doubters. These are those who who are hearing this weird teaching or they're over here and they're they're aligning themselves with people because I've, I've followed this person for a while and I don't, I don't know what they're saying is different than what you're saying and, and doubt is introduced. What do you do with the doubter? You show mercy. Show mercy. Have mercy on them because you've been shown mercy. And in terms of unbelieving Israel, Paul says it this way. He says, Romans 11, verse 30, just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so now also these have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. Remember where you came from? Remember the times in your life you were the doubter? And if there's a brother or sister who's really struggling with faith or struggling with the church or struggling with some issue with Christianity or the Word of God, you don't turn your back on them. Now you show them mercy. Show mercy to the doubter. But there's a second group. He says here in verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. So you've got the doubters and you've got the overheated. These are those. <laughs> Man, they're right on the edge. This you could, you could extrapolate as a believing Christian, perhaps, but living immorally. Or buying into bad doctrine. And how are we to respond to them? 
Those whose lives do not reflect. Man, they are right there. They're, they're leaning out over the fire. What do you do with them? You know, you act like a first responder and you run into the flames to get them out. You go for salvation's sake. He says, you snatch them out of the fire. Snatch them out. By the way, the word snatch there is harpazo. Rapture them out of the fire. See why I think maybe the rapture is on Jude's mind here? Now to you and me, we say, oh, okay, well, so that's that word. No, 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 no. When you're writing scripture, you're thinking about what you're writing. And it would be the same thing if I was sitting here, if this was the letter of Rick, thank the Lord it's not. But if it was and I was sitting here, I would write down in that verse and say, Mother, rapturing them out of the fire. Yeah, that's the right word. And I know exactly what I meant. And so did Jude. Pull them out, man. Save them. Get them out of that place. And God's going to do the same thing to the church. He's going to pull us out. Jesus said, upon this rock, that is faith in Christ, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So don't worry about the gates of Hades. Don't worry about those flames. Don't worry about the fire. Let's be about the saving business. But there's a third group here. There are the doubters and the overheated. And then he says, and on some have mercy with fear. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And now we're talking about the polluters. Not ungodly because they're lapsing. Not ungodly because they're one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Ungodly because they have desired and intended to be ungodly. They have an axe to grind perhaps with God. Or maybe like Cain, they're just angry. Like Korah, they're rebellious. Perhaps like Balaam, they're just greedy. But whatever the case, these are the polluters. These are what what Jude calls these men, certain persons, ungodly. But what's interesting to me about Jude is he holds out hope even for the creeps and the mockers. He's still holding out hope. Because he says on some, have mercy with fear. Have mercy even to those who are involved in false teaching. There's got to be a way to help them out. At least we try. We do what we can. We're not the judge. God's the judge. So we go after even them in love. But, but know this, you don't show mercy by compromise. You don't show mercy by caving in. Oh, well, yeah, we'll let you teach that false doctrine because we just love you, man. We'll allow you to live that lifestyle in this fellowship because, you know, I love a God and we can't really tell you. Well, I'm not comfortable with it. I wouldn't do it myself. Clearly, Romans chapter 1, Paul would have a problem with it, but you go ahead. It's okay. We'll be tolerant. That's not showing mercy. That is not fact. You know what that is? That is condemning someone. When someone is living under that kind of false doctrine or false understanding of the Word and you just close an eye to it, that's nah, okay. We'll just allow it. Then you're effectively condemning them in that lifestyle choice. Man, have mercy with fear. Which means merciful discernment. It means for all people, again, whether it's just the, the doubter or, or the overheated, the, the person who's you know kind of playing at both sides, or the, the intentionally ungodly, whoever it is, we have mercy with fear. We show mercy. We show compassion. But where this last group is concerned, we fear God more than we fear the ungodly. That's important. Because the church has done too much 
I said this a little bit of this on Sunday, but we've done too much fearing, not only fearing the world, but we have feared the ungodly in the church. And we've allowed things to go on in churches because eh, don't want to cause a problem. Don't want to be a big issue. Don't want to be seen as all self-righteous and judgmental. So just let it go. It's not okay. We show love and compassion, but we don't cave in. We fear God always more than we would ever fear man. Fear the Lord. It's His Word. It's His standard. It's His creation. It's His deal. The whole thing. By the way, verses 22 and 23 is the compelling effect of keeping yourself in the love of God. Because if you're in the love of God, you are out there helping the doubters. You are saving those who, who need to be snatched from the fire. And you are having mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. I mean, you are out there doing the work because you love. You're in the love of God. This is what God does. You love the church with all its messes. You love the church. Now Jude ends with a beautiful little benediction. Verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It's beautiful, and if you think I'm done, you don't know me very well. I want you to see three things before we're done. A triad, if you will. (laughs) This is my triad. This is not Jude's triad. First of all, notice the bookends. The bookends. He begins the letter in verse 1 saying to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He bookends now the letter saying, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Jude ends where he begins. He begins saying we are kept for Jesus. He ends saying we are kept by Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? He's doing both. He desires us and He keeps us. Secondly, so bookends, secondly, don't miss the blamelessness. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Uh, You've been watching the Kavanaugh hearings. I'm not going to do a lot of weighing in here, but i got to say this. Anybody here blameless back in high school? I'm not dismissing anything that may or may not have happened. Anybody blameless? We've gotten to a point in our country where we are judging stuff that nobody can... We are all to blame. We all carry blame. You may be dealing with the weight of blame in your life just for something that happened last week or this year or recently. This is so wonderful. This is so freeing that He will make us stand in the presence of His glory blameless. If you've ever felt guilt or shame or sorrow over sin in your life, you will be blameless. And note that He says with great joy because that's what blamelessness does. To be free. To not even be able to be accused of anything ever again. No one from your past can show up and go, oh, but by the way, this happened. She did this. He did that. Blameless. With great joy, he says. And finally, he says, to the only 
God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we come to the benediction itself. The benediction to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Wow. The only God our Savior, he says. Isaiah 43 verse 11 I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Be clear about that. God was clear through Isaiah 750 years before Jesus stood on the earth. God said, I am the only Savior. And then along comes Jesus Christ, and He claims to be Savior. But there's only one. You realize in the New Testament, God is listed as Savior eight times. In the New Testament, Jesus is listed as Savior exactly twice that, 16 times. Who's the Savior? There's only one. Exactly. There is only one. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, our only God and our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, you say, well, but but he's dividing the two. No, the saving is through Jesus. Jesus is the, Hebrew writer said, full representation of his being. The exact representation. And representation as an English word doesn't even come close to what the Hebrew pastor is saying there. He is the exact form, if you will, of the being of God. God in the flesh... The Savior. And my friends, there is coming a day we're going to see this vividly. It's a day not far off when Revelation chapter 5 verse 13 tells us something interesting. It says, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Listen again. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Or as Jude writes, glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. It's a very similar benediction. What's fascinating to me, and I'll tell you this ahead of time. We're not going to be to Revelation 5 for several months anyway. Revelation chapter 5, 13 says, Every created thing suddenly says this. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and on the sea, everything, created thing, the word created thing there is katisma, and it means all creatures, great and small, are all of a sudden going to stand up and say, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The dogs are going to do it. The dolphins on the sea are going to do it. The cows. You know the cows you always pass when you're going into Oak Harbor down there and to Guala Bay? They're over there on the side and they're just chomping on their stuff. They're they're all of a sudden going to go, To him who sits on the throne, be glory. I'm not making this stuff up. It's in your Bible. Read it. Every created thing is going to speak Glory to God, blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever, and they say it to the Lamb and to the and, and to God who are God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, finally the letter ends with a final triad, the fourteenth triad that Jude shows us, and it is a triad of time. He says, Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Jude is a storm warning. 
It's an alarm clock to awaken the church of God, but it closes with absolute and eternal confidence in God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, Holy Father, and Spirit of the living God, thank You for Your patience with us. Thank You for Your long-suffering. Thank You, Lord, for standing across time and giving us opportunity to turn to You. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace that saves us from our sin. Thank You for Your mercy that does not give us what we deserve. Thank You for the promise, Father, that we will one day soon be caught up to be with You forever. Father, I ask that You will motivate in us through all these things godliness. That we will come to consider, just as blamelessness breeds great joy, that we will come to understand and consider that godliness is great joy and contentment. That aligning ourselves with You and living for You, walking in Your Spirit, Lord, all of this is joy and peace. We need more of that in our lives. We need more godliness. The world, Lord, needs more godliness. And more people who are walking with You. So Lord Jesus, know that we are thrilled that we are kept for You. And we pray, keep us from stumbling and make us to stand in the presence of His glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.